Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of CNUSD EdChat. Yes, thank Hello. you. We are so excited about our next guest, Dr. Ernest Morrell. Ivy and Kate were able to sit down with him in Washington, D.C. during Scholastic's Literacy Summit. Which, by the way, we heard was fantastic. And in no way are we jealous of the nope. experience you two were able to have in our nation's capital, one of my favorite places, mm. Nancy Atwell, Dr. Morrell. It was awesome. Ivy sat down with Dr. Ernest Morrell to discuss the importance of not just bringing media into our classrooms, but how vital it is to examine it critically. Ooh, critical media literacy, love that. Let's learn more about it. Yes, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to see you again. Uh, it's a wonderful day here in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, it's 70 and, and perfect, so it's blustery in New York. <laughs> uh, my name is Ernest Morrell. Uh, I am a professor in English education at Teachers College, Columbia University. I also direct an institute there. Um, it's called the Institute for Urban and Minority Education, or UMI, but really we try to do work with uh, schools and families and communities really targeting literacy, engagement, and social action. And what we try to do, um, for lack of a better word, is develop powerful practices that are research-based that can be emulated. We want to be solution-focused. One of the things that I, I first heard you speak about was the Council of Youth Research. Can you tell us a bit about your work and, and experience with that? Yeah, so that was actually you know near your neck of the woods. That was when I was in Southern California and there were many facets to the Council of Youth Research, but the focal part was a six-week summer experience for kids in Los Angeles um, from schools in East Los Angeles, South Central, and Watts. They would come to the university, they would develop research questions that they were interested in, and uh, they would be learning about how to do research, and they'd go out into the neighborhoods and collect data, and uh, they would be sharing that through formal research reports and policy briefs, but they would also be developing like documentaries or spoken word poems and hip-hop songs and mm -hmm. taking some form of social action. Then that work followed them back into the schools because there were teachers that were also involved. So you had this group of kids from all over the city coming together for the summer, going back out to their individual schools and thinking about how that work connected to their learning. Mm -hmm. uh, we traced those students. Uh, it started in 1999. I was there until 2011 had amazing academic results with the kids. Um, all of them graduated high school and went on to post-secondary education, but they were also very involved in kind of traditional and new media literacy learning. So much of the work that uh, is our research comes out of uh, that work in the Council of Youth Research. That actually takes us to the next question that I have for you about critical media pedagogy. In 21st century education, many teachers are familiar with media literacy, but in your book, you speak of critical media literacy. Can you talk about the difference between those two? Yes, I will. I mean, it, it was very important to us because at the beginning of the 20th century, the media literacy um, had multiple components. Some of it was really just corporations trying to get people online so that they could sell products to them. <laughs> and so we weren't, it wasn't just about like, how to use the media. It was about how to discern messages that were sent to you via the media, how to understand like, who the sources of the information are, what do they want you to believe. So there were multiple components for us. One, of it, one part was a critical reading of the media. So if I'm looking at, for instance, uh, like an image in a magazine that could be demeaning to women, right? And so the mm -hmm. understanding how the image is put together would just be media literacy. But a critical media literacy would say, what kind of messages are they sending? What do they want young girls to think about themselves? So we really want students to ask questions of the media they read because many of those 
uh, media artifacts are created by adults to create a sense of insecurity in kids so that they mm. buy the products they're selling. So one component was a critical media reading. But for us, it went further than that. So part of the critical and critical media is having students be producers of media. And so you're not just a receiver of media anymore mm-hmm. as we move into the third decade of the 21st century, whether it's on your tablet or your smartphone or you know through a laptop or other kinds of artifacts. You're, you can create documentaries. You can create social media sites, you can participate on social media sites. Uh, So we wanted the kids to see themselves as being producers of media, especially because if you want to get a different message out than what you're getting through the corporate media, um, now you have the power to do that. And then the third aspect was distribution. It's critical because you're sharing it with others. So if um, if you're trying to confront larger stereotypes and social norms that may be oppressive, um, you want to share that as widely as possible. So we had critical media consumption, critical media production, and critical media distribution. So how can school and community leaders begin to implement critical media literacy? Like, uh, what might be the first steps if they were looking to, to go down that road and, and change or augment what they were already doing? So the one thing that you'd want to do is be asking the same kinds of questions of the novels that you're reading and the plays and the poems. Mm-hmm. And the media component would be asking those questions also of video games and films and websites. The other part of it would be allowing students the space to produce multimodally. And so I I advocate for having multiple kinds of projects at the ends of units. We don't want to displace the traditional kinds of assignments, but you might be doing an essay or report, but you might also be doing a documentary. So kids need spaces to be able to produce through the media, or you might have a Google suite or those sorts of things. So having media artifacts that you're consuming critically and having spaces for kids to produce multimodally. You know, one of your books describes Miss Garcia's ninth grade English classroom, where all of the writing assignments are labeled as critical. Can you tell us a bit more about Miss Garcia's classroom and, and why exactly it's important that she added the word critical to all of her writing assignments? Yeah, it's funny. I've got a smile on my face because I can still see the kids. Like, we know, Miss, it's going to be our critical poems, right? <laughs> Not just poems, <laughs> critical poems. Uh-huh. And she meant it in a couple of ways. One, she wanted the young people to have a, a powerful relationship with words. So if it was the poem, a critical poem meant that you had a certain kind of authority that you didn't just have to follow the rules or be submissive. Uh, It meant a a way of speaking back to power, that it was youth-focused, that it was concerned with justice and equity. And it was a way for her to talk about what we might say is a critical ontology or critical way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. And she wanted the kids to think about everything they did as infused with that. Like the kids would say, oh, it means going deeper into the text or, or questioning things, right? And so they got a sense that it was about speaking back, but I think what became more the norm that they didn't necessarily know at a conscious level was that it means that we do it. And they're both important. I think about critical as being kind of in the mind, like epistemological, it's what you think, but it's really in the body. And the, you, you, you get to that embodying criticality through... Uh, repositioning kids as agents of change. Right? So that's kind of what she meant when she said that we're, we're critical everything, criticalizing the English <laughs> curriculum for ninth graders in East Los Angeles. Repositioning students as agents of change. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I'm taking away from yeah. that. Very much so. And if a teacher is ready to shift his or her own classroom to have more of this critical lens, 
for literacy, what resources or tools are out there for teachers to utilize? I think that there are, or there are multiple kinds of tools. So there would be some, whether it was books or um, articles that would really focus on critical literacy. And in the Google world, you could just you could find them, right? The free ones and uh-huh. that sort of thing. Um, but I would also think about the text themselves, right? So the resources would be uh, more diverse literatures. It would be being a student of popular culture. It would mean um, reading CNN during election season as something I might bring into the classroom. I call it kind of like sticky fingers, uh-huh. but in the digital age, sticky fingers doesn't work, right? It's just got to be a sticky mind. <laughs> you got to you know, be able to grab and bring things in. So, there, so there's the meta resources, which are like the resources that name themselves as being about critical literacy or critical media literacy, but there, there's, the, there's the textuality of it. And that's, that includes digital modalities as well. And those are also resources. Mm-hmm. So you might see uh, a bunch of kids in the library huddle over a book and you're like, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to you know, interrupt, but what are you so excited about? Like, oh, we're reading Kwame Alexander's The Crossover. Like, that's a resource, right? It's like if these boys are that excited about it. So you also want to be thinking about those kind of original sources or artifacts and how to bring those into your classroom. I'm completely enthralled because I think that is, I think exactly what you said as far as us always thinking that there is some type of outside resource that's going to help us make X, Y, and Z happen more or further or Mm -hmm. deeper as opposed to looking at what we already have Mm -hmm. and maybe thinking about it through a different lens. Yeah, Yeah. and I think if you came up with a, a bank of questions, like what are critical questions? And that would help you think about a critical lens. Mm-hmm. Like, who's in charge here? Like, mm-hmm. Who's speaking? Who's being spoken to? And what kinds of power norms are reproduced? And, you know, I might ask that in a ninth grade way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, who's the boss and who's being bossed? <laughs> Something uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. But you come up with a set of questions and then that materializes the critical lens as opposed to saying, well, Paulo Freire said, and better go to the oppressed. Like, no, that comes later. You really start with a, with a, with a more on-the-ground sense of, how do we want kids to relate to text? How do we want them to relate to each other? Mm-hmm. How do we want them to relate to the world? Mm. And that, that's where I would start. And in one of your keynote speeches, you delivered in, in, at the California Leadership Symposium in Monterey, where we last saw you, um, you were speaking to the audience. And one of the biggest takeaways that uh, our team took away at that time was you asked, how do we get kids to love themselves as readers? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you answer this question? It's funny. I think of an image, you know, of, uh, I, I call it leaning in. You can't see me leaning in, but I'm leaning in right now. <laughs> so imagine me leaning in. So, so part of it is like, how do we get them into the tiger crouch around the book, right? Just kind of uh-huh. like lean into it or the text. Loving yourself um, is, is much more about how does this make me feel about who I am and what I'm capable of doing. Right, so that's an outcome. Right, what what are the inputs to that? The, the texts have to speak to you; they have to move you. But you also have to have a, a set of abilities to, that allow you to have that conversation with the text. Right, confidence is reinforced by ability. So the so part of what we need to do is develop the fluency and the stamina and those sorts of things. And so kids need the academic vocabulary and all of that, but it has to be in the context of thoroughly engaging and engrossing text and activities around those texts. So you, you need both. Because if you just focus on the skills, but it's reading something that's just absolutely like paint drying, right? you're like, I can read it, but I'm not loving myself. Or it could be, you know, the text that speaks to you, but like every third word you have to run to the dictionary and you can't, you don't, can't read it fluently and you get 
upset with yourself. So it's a, it's a simple formula of kind of engaging text and, and, and increasing literacy abilities that leads to loving yourself as a reader. Which leads to that confidence, yeah. something that we're continuously doing. We don't find it as, as taxing. Mm-hmm. or um, And I t- I'm totally picturing my group of first grade students my first years of teaching, mm-hmm. and that's what it was all about. Not just teaching them how to read, but teaching them to love reading. I think when you stop thinking of it as reading and you think about it as the text you're engaging with and you lose yourself, right. then that's when you're in love with yourself as a reader. As, uh, and, and, and to lose yourself in that way is a real privilege that every kid has the right to. I agree. And at the end of each interview, we have a segment called Tomorrow, This Week, and This Month. So with so many changes um, to 21st century education and learning, what advice can you give to teachers or families to try tomorrow? What can they try this week? And what should they try this month? So for, for families and communities, uh, what kinds of questions do I ask my children? And if we want to make it specific, I would really encourage them to think about the kinds of questions they ask their children about the media they engage. Right. So show me your favorite video or the kind of and and it's not to critique it, but what kinds of questions will we ask to be better consumers of, of the media that that we choose? And then um, I, I would begin conversations with them about the media we don't choose, like something on the news or, you know, how is the news? How is it portraying people by this particular group? Or, you know, do you think that the media is biased here? And having that kind of conversation, I remember my hearing my mom think out loud. And okay. she would pace behind the couch. It's like, you know, I don't know. How come every time they have black people on there, they're like in, in prison or, you know, like playing in the football league or something like that? And I began thinking, that is true. Right? Uh-huh. So, so it was her way of having the conversation with me. And so I think that it's good to do that. In the class, I would think, of what are the uh, one or two minute interjections I can have in a unit where I bring in a piece of media and we just show it? Um, and we could still be, you know, in Act Two, Scene Three of Romeo and Juliet, but it might just be a couple lines from a song. And like, you know, what do you think are some of the connections here? Right. So, how do I make those connections? Um, and then I would especially think, um, what could I do to be aware of how talk happens in my classroom, and what might I do to change how talk happens in my classroom so it's more of a shared space, uh-huh. students feel a sense of ownership, but also that they're developing the ability to be good talkers in all the different ways we want them to talk in class, whether that's a Socratic discussion, whether it's a small group discussion, whether it's making formal presentations or doing book talks. But that's a, like, you could do that on Monday. I think that's what every teacher wants to hear. What can I try on Monday? Yeah, yeah. What can I walk away with? And we're hoping that our listeners, both families and educators, can walk away with with tidbits. What can Mm -hmm. I try? What can I do on Monday? I think that's what makes the profession so great. Even if you've been in it for 30 years, there's always Monday. There's There's always a chance to reinvent yourself and always a chance to do something different. Yes, I think I'm going to put that on a cup. (laughs) There's always Monday. (laughs) Yeah, there's another way you could think about Mondays, but I'm thinking in this positive way, right? There's always Monday, meaning, you know, a new chance to to reinvent. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. a new chance. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I want to thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are very pleased that we finally got to snag you. And um, we're hoping that our listeners will take away um, everything that we've taken away each time we get a chance to hear from you. Well, it's been a real pleasure, and thank you for having me again. It's, uh, I'm excited to hear it and to see what you do and see these podcasts go viral and change the <laughs> world, right? That would be awesome. <laughs> 
I love the formula about how engaging text, increasing literacy abilities leads to loving yourself as a reader. This is so relevant for teachers and students in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And this idea of creating a critical question bank as a method to analyze the outside world and bring it into the classroom is such a valuable tool for teachers looking for outside resources. And it's so important for us to hear that as educators and parents, there's always a new day to reinvent ourselves and try again. There is always Monday. Absolutely. We highly recommend his book, Every Child a Super Reader, which he wrote with Pam Allen, our season two opener, as a guide to help us create opportunities for students to love themselves as a reader. We need to keep it relevant and engaging. So to help us keep it relevant for you, our listeners, please leave us a comment on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and tell us what inspired you or share with us what topics you'd like us to focus on. Be sure to check out our show notes page for all the resources mentioned in this episode. Bye. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Since recording our interview with Ernest Morrell at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. last October, he has moved on into a new position. Dr. Morell is now the Coyle Professor of Literacy Education at Notre Dame. Congratulations on your new position, Dr. Morell. Thank you for continuing your dedication to literacy education. You can follow his new literacy center on Twitter at CLE at ND. That's C-L-E-A-T-N-D. Hi, I'm Russell and I'm going into the fifth grade. If you would like to comment on their podcast, go to cnusd.k12 dot ca dot us slash edchat and be sure to follow them on twitter and facebook at cnusd edchat to let them know the topics you are interested in if you enjoyed this episode please help us out by leaving a five-star review on itunes we greatly appreciate your support this episode of cnusd edchat was written and produced by kate jackson ivy yule eldridge Anne Marie cortez and me kim kemmer and edited by Ken Pucci.